The Tablet Show, episode 42, with guest David Bates. Recorded live Friday, June 29th, 2012. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to David Bates about the state of Flash. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Welcome back to The Tablet Show. It's Carl and Richard. We're here to talk about tablets and all that stuff. Hey, man, what's up with you? Uh, you know, it must be summertime. My one daughter off at a camp for curling, and the wife is off with her girlfriends for a week. So I'm sort of batching it with the 20-year-old daughter. Uh, you know, just changes the dynamic in the house. I'm in the middle of a uh, test run for a uh, a project contract that we may get for video editing. So that's fun, and I'm con- and I'm considering the whole process right now so i'm in that you know what that stage is like you, you're designing stuff you're thinking through the problem and just spending a lot of time laying on your back looking up the stars yeah thinking workflow right it's a yep. really fun way to be I, I did a whole conversation a little while ago on architecture the same thing just thinking through the flow yep. of how stuff should go together yeah yep we sort of devalue that no i just need time to think about it yeah gotta yeah. stare off into space well, let's start up with uh, Better Know a Framework. All right. What do you got, my friends? Well, and we're getting back to the framework today. Um, so, you, you, you remember XSL? <laughs> Did you just say that out loud? You remember that? Uh, you remember XSLT? Yeah. Give me chills, man, but yeah. Well, believe it or not, the Windows runtime has a class for handling XSLT. Oh, no. Because, you know, we still have XSLT documents out there, and we need to use them sometimes. Um, it's one method on one class in one namespace. Okay. Windows.data.xml.xsl.xslt processor, and it's a method called transform to string. Hmm. So, uh, I, there's no samples in the documentation, but I went looking and I found somebody asking a question in the Windows community at the Dev Center, right? And they got back an answer that satisfied them. So, I'm turning people to this sample, which is at tinyurl.com slash winrtxslt sample. And that shows you how to use this within the context of, you know, uh, await and async and all that stuff and using xdom and uh, x documents, that kind of thing. So it's a really simple, concise sample of how to do an XSLT transform in WinRT. And I think that's valuable. Wow, that is something. And I mean, I haven't used XSLT in eons, like yep. really pre-WCF, like before any of that stuff. Yep, sure. We were using it for, for doing soap transformations. Like, right. Yeah. Oh, I get chills. Well, whenever you want to transfer one XML document type to another. Right. That's what it's for. That's what it's good at. Yep. I, I never was sure what it was for, but I know what it was good <laughs> at. How's that? You like that? <laughs> never sure. Yeah, make the bad man stop. That's it, yeah. <laughs> there are very few technologies that really make my head hurt. 
Yeah. Uh, XSLT is up there. Regex. Yeah. Xpath. Xpath. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah, it, I'm glad we sort of moved away from all of that. I like link to XML. Makes me happy. I love it too. It's and beautiful. X documents are wonderful. And if you happen to be one of the lucky people who get to use visualbasic.net as your programming language, you get a whole lot of XML goodness in there. Did a lot of XML love in there. Yep, love it. All right, who's talking to us? Grabbed an email from Brett Robichaud, who's commenting on tablet show number 38. And 38, if you recall, was the one we did with Mary Jo Foley. That was a good one. Yeah, it was good fun. And he says, uh, guys, just wanted to make a minor correction about the listener email you read on show 38. The email mentioned that Visual Studio 2012 was only going to have an express edition that supports Metro development. While this quote was true, I wanted to point out that back on June 8th, 2012, Soma Sagar, Soma himself, announced that Microsoft had heard the feedback loud and clear and is changing directions 180 degrees and plans to release a version of Studio 2012 Express for Windows Desktop this fall. I love it when Microsoft really listens to its customers and developers. It was a bad decision in the first place, and we all made them keenly aware, and they heard us. And here's a link to the blog post, which I will include in the show notes. And yeah, good news, yeah. Brett. I, I'm glad we were able to change their minds. They can be persuaded. I, I thought that I watched that whole process, you know, uh, and I, I thought it was great the way they responded to things and didn't respond, um, you know, to hype, but were able to just sort out what was a good idea and what wasn't. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And they and they really did jump onto it. Uh, Brett goes on to say, with regard to the rest of the show, I have just one comment. I, too, was disappointed to hear that Windows Phone 8 would not be backward compatible with hardware. But what may be overlooked is that to your average customer, this just isn't a big deal. WinPhone 7.5, which will eventually become 7.8, is pretty sweet. And of all the new features in WinPhone 8, the one that is most likely to be noticed by your average customer is the start screen. And Microsoft mm. gives that in 7.8. Yeah. So while it is an unusual move for Microsoft, the masters of backwards compatibility, I believe they thought this through fully and realized the risk. I, too, hope they have not truly Osborned themselves. <laughs> or Edsels. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I and, and I tend to agree with them. I think that we as devs are really probably more excited about the new OS than anyone else. Sure. That, you know, people just want a phone. Yeah. And if... and. I'm going to keep my Nokia Lumia 900 until I need something else. If yeah. there's a killer app that I absolutely have to have that isn't compatible with it, I'll, it'll make me change. Yeah, we'll deal with it. But it's a great phone. It is a lovely phone. And I think there is a challenge for developers to maintain a 7.8 and an 8.0 edition. We'll see what happens there. But that's still a ways in the future. So it's not going to impact anything right now. Yeah. And for those who don't know what we were talking about when we said Osborne, uh, because you know what? It's an old reference now. I've yeah, forgotten it <laughs> that it's, but a few folks came at me and went, what did you say? Osborne? What is that? Is that got anything to do with the, the, the rock singer? Uh, <laughs> no, no, that's not Ozzy. Uh, Osborne was a computer manufacturer way back in the early days of the PC who came up with one of the very first luggable PCs that you could transport. It, right. uh, luggable is, it's like it was a piece of uh, furniture. Or, it was before laptops yeah, or any of that. Any of that sort of stuff. And their, their original model started selling and then they announced their new model that they were going to, in a year from now, going to build this new model with all these great new features, and it stopped the sales of the original product right. to the point where the company went broke and never built the second model. Yeah, so that's not a good idea. No, but, you know, I don't think Microsoft's in the same danger that Osborne is by any stretch of the imagination. There's something about having 50 
billion dollars in the bank. Yeah. It makes you a little more flexible. Just uh, saying. Yeah. And, you know, the contract model of North America, where you're getting a new phone every two or three years anyway, just means this this rollover should be pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Provided we can actually buy Win Phone 8s from the carrier someday. Yeah. That remains to be seen. That as, remains to be seen. As we said in that show, we wish we knew more. That yeah. was the theme of that show. We knew some, but we did not know enough. Yep. Uh, regardless, Brett, thanks so much for your comment, and we will be sending out a rare and precious tablet show mug to you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, you can write us an email at .rocks at franklins.net or write a comment on the site at thetabletshow.com. It's a great mug. It holds two cups of coffee and also a heck of a lot of bourbon. Yeah, people have found out we like big mugs. Yep. I've got mine in my hand right now. So do I. Just tea, though. And with that, let me introduce our esteemed guest. David Bates has been hacking hardware and software for over 20 years, starting with a pioneering project for Dow Corning and IBM involving software-controlled robotic arms. He has since become proficient in a dozen languages and APIs, has programmed on just about every type of device, phone, desktop, and embedded devices, and is currently a lead developer for a leading manufacturer of IC products. He is well known in the community for using tools such as Arduino and Netduino to hack everyday objects, transforming them into something fun. He has conducted extensive research into hacking the Kinect to expand its applications in computer control, robotics, security, and related markets man after my own heart. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. We like to hack on the tablet show. I love to hack. Yeah. Are we up to our hip waiters and topics with David today or what? <laughs> Let's just start with what got you interested in hacking in the first place and how old were you? I was eight years old uh, and Dow Corning had a uh, robotic arm that they brought to our school. And uh, just basically gave it to us and said, what can you do with this? Wow. I think we were using QBasic at the time. And, uh, you know, just moving the arm around started that inspiration. Mm. I, I went from there to basic stamp and, and on up. What did they say? Uh, they, they left a tutor there with us. But the tutor was a uh, uh, a high school student that had just gotten into the program himself. So we pretty much had to figure it out on our own. Wow. But that's such a good idea. What a simple thing to do. You just give something, a, give everyone a gadget so cool they can't resist it. How many kids were turned on by it? Like, because it seems to me like if I brought that, if I did something like that in my high school, there'd probably be like three kids who would go, wow, this is awesome. And the rest of that's them. That's exactly right. Yeah. There was a class of 12, and I think there was three of us. Uh, that really got into it and went on and, and tried to learn on our own. The rest of them, you know, had their social circles going. Wow. So what did you do with it? Uh, pick up stuff, move it around, you know, just, just basic stuff that you can do with a robotic arm. Uh, we made a HTML interface to it, uh, which actually it was STML. <laughs> wow. STML. Yeah. So it was way, way back. I think it was, uh, 90. 93 or 94. Oh, you said SGML. SGML, yeah. SGML, yeah. That was the precursor. That was sort of the overarching uh, uh, superset of HTML, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So so that really just sparked your interest. It was just enough kind of thing for you to be able to control with just enough knowledge to say, this is what I really want to do. Exactly. I went home 
built my first computer from that, uh, or that sparked the interest to go and collect things and build my first computer. And then from there, just start learning more. I bought a basic stamp kit and chalk myself that and just kept going. Love the basic stamp, man. Mm-hmm. Richard got me hooked on that. What a great product. Yeah, I love it too. So much capability and such a little package and so easy to do that, you know, kids can, can do it. I was very close to building um, a device for my daughter's sneakers because the, with the basic stamp, you could, you know, it was it was just like the, the, the precursor to the Arduino, but it wasn't .NET. It was a version of basic, but it was a little board that you could, could attach sensors to and read with code and... and you know, figure out what was going on. You can make buzzers buzz and things happen. And my daughter had a problem where she walked on the tips of her toes and it was genetic, like her mother, her mother's mother, her mother's mother's mother. They all did that when they were kids, but uh, it was really becoming a problem. So I, I, I made a prototype of this device that had a sensor that was a pressure sensor ribbon. And I put that in there, uh, one in the heel, one in the toe. And I had it read uh, the heel and the toe, and if if uh, you know if I could detect the pattern where it was toe 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 and no heel, then I would uh, you know buzz a buzzer that would essentially give her a little feedback to say, "Hey, put your feet down." That's awesome. And I, I think I got her to wear a shoe and walk. She walked around the house for like five minutes and then you know stepped on it. So it wasn't a good design, <laughs> but it was just cool. Like I said, I wanted to do this and Richard goes, oh, I got a link for you. Basic stamp. So with the basic stamp, um, what are some of the kinds of things that, that caught your eye? What are some of the things that you did with it? I want to hear your cool stories. Ah, well, my cool stories start with the Arduino. The basic stamp I basically uh, just played with. Uh, with the Arduino, I started writing interfaces in Flash uh, that would talk via serial port back to the Arduino. So it started out, uh, the first project I made was uh, called the Roberto Meter. Robert happens to be my boss at my current job. And uh, people in the group could vote on how they felt that he, you know, his anger level was. <laughs> and, it, and it would light up a... Have you ever seen one of those service lights? That was like red, yellow, and green. It would light that up based on their votes. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. So I love doing cool little things like that that tie in the web, tie in flash, tie in hardware. That's cool. I want more. Tell me more. What else did you do? <laughs> uh, well, with Connect, uh, that's the most recent thing that I've been doing. Um, I recently made a uh, application for security so that when people walks up to my front door, it takes a snippet of their face, just the just the face, sends it off to face.com, and then comes back and shows me whether they were an angry bear or a happy bear. Because <laughs> that's really all you need to know. Is this is this good news or bad news? Do I really want to answer the door? <laughs> exactly. I love it. I, I think we have not really thought through how much we can use the Kinect throughout the house. Just the, oh, yeah. every room's going to have a couple of Kinect-like devices in it all the time. Yeah, but good luck convincing your wife to let that happen because, you know, oh, yeah, it's connected to the internet. Oh, yeah, it's watching you. Hell no. <laughs> I actually don't 
don't think that a connect is going to be in every room, but that IR projection and detection system. Yeah. I think that that piece of it will be. Yeah. Yeah. We don't really need the optical camera. What we need is the 3d. Is there somebody in this room? Are they moving? You know, what's their, can we figure out who they are? Just that to be able to instrument a house to know what rooms people are in and roughly what they're doing. I think it's pretty powerful. So tell me about face.com. Uh, face.com is a uh, facial recognition API that you can tie into, but instead of just facial recognition, it has ties into Facebook. It also tells you the mood of the person, whether they're smiling or not, and whether they're male or female. Wow. So does it use Facebook as the database of, uh, of, of available people? It can use uh, either a local database or uh, Facebook itself. Wow. Well, Facebook now owns Face. That's right. Yeah, I see that. And they actually come up with an app a couple of weeks ago called Click that you can just point like your iPhone or your Android at a certain person. And if they're part of your friend list, it'll tell you all about them. Neat. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, I need that for conferences because I go to these conferences like once a year and uh, I'll meet someone once. And of course, they know about all about me and Richard, too, because we're on the show. They feel they know all about me, so... Uh, we we just pick up a conversation we had a year ago, and it takes me a few minutes to figure out what's going on. To catch up. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. No. Although it's tempting. It is very, <laughs> very tempting. tempting. This portion of the Tablet Show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the Tablet Show. David, I ran across you uh, doing searches on topics around the Tablet Show, and I came across a, uh, a session you've done called The Zombification of Flash. <laughs> and at that point, I thought, I need to talk to this guy. <laughs> so, are you working in Flash? Yes. Yes, I do. I thought Flash was dead. Yes, Steve Jobs shot it in the head. <laughs> well, millions of Android users still like it. Well, actually, it's not going to be in the next version of Android. No Is kidding. It? Yeah, they just released that today. Jeez, it's dead then. Well, it's it's actually not dead. Uh, Adobe created a, another project called Air. So even though I use Flash and use all of the knowledge that I had for being a web developer in Flash... Uh, they created Air that allows me to package native apps for iPhone, Android, and BlackBerry Playbook. Hmm. Now, when you say native apps, I know they also have uh, PhoneGap. That's not what we're talking about. No, no. PhoneGap is a separate uh, a separate thing, but I have used it as well. It's very cool. But I mean, Air 
uh, is much more of a native product of Adobe. They didn't just acquire that. This is really sort of the evolution of Flash, isn't it? That is correct, yes. And it, it's a cross-platform development product? I mean, that's what this is all about? Yes, it works on Windows uh, and Mac. So you can develop on Windows or on the Mac and actually write iOS applications on Windows. Interesting. And it'll make native iOS apps with all of the tools that it... Now, what what kind of language are we talking about? It uses ActionScript 3, mm-hmm. which is the, the language of Flash. Sure. But it actually compiles down to ARM code. Hmm. So it, it does make a native app. Hmm. So in, in the end, you are getting all the way down to the native assemblies, but you're, are you bypassing all the stuff that's actually in the phone? Like you, you're not using, if you're to talk about iOS, you're not using uh, Cocoa and Xcode, like the normal UI elements? That's correct. You wouldn't normally use Cocoa and, uh, and Xcode. You would use Flash Professional or Flash Builder, and then the Adobe Air runtime okay. to compile down. But uh, you can use things like iAd or... Um, the notification center, any of the iOS SDK stuff, yeah, you can tap into through Air. Interesting. And is this a free product from Adobe? Uh, if you use Flash Builder, it is. I believe uh, the Flex SDK right uh, is open source and free. Uh, I don't use Flex, so I'm not sure about that. Okay. But yeah, I'm looking here. The Flash Builder 4.5 Premium, sort of the all-up that's got air and everything in it is 700 bucks. I mean, that sounds more like it. This is the company that brought you Photoshop, right? Yes, exactly. It's no different than what everybody else is doing, which is how do we retrofit, or not retrofit, but how do we let uh, users of our application, our development platform, leverage their skills that they already know to create iOS apps? I mean, it's what Monotouch is and all of that stuff. So it's just another way to create these apps using stuff that you already know. I actually build apps in a different way. The uh, the core part of my app, I build in HTML5 because all of the modern phones have HTML5 renderers. Uh, so the core of my app is just a web app. But then the shell of the app, the Chrome, if you will, I create in, uh, in Adobe or I'll create it on the Windows side uh, using Visual Studio. So that I can have one app or one set of code that I can port to all of these devices. Yeah. Now, um, I'll ask you the same thing that I asked the Monotouch guys. Where, what's the drawback? When do you, what brick wall do you hit when you say, no, nope, you know what? I'm just going to do this in Xcode. I haven't hit one yet. Well, what kinds of apps are you building? Uh, I, I mainly build enterprise apps, so I don't use a lot of the graphics intensive stuff. Mm hmm. Uh, but most of my stuff is tie-ins with like SAP or uh, presenting products in a uh, in a UI that's you know built for uh, the iPad or built for the iPhone. Um, so most of mine is more like interactive product selection guides. Yeah. I also do kiosk applications for use at trade shows. Mm-hmm. So they'll be more interactive, informative about the trade show itself, and we'll embed the iPads in a display. Hmm. Yeah. But this also strikes me as the classic enterprise app scenario, which is you're not you're not building an app to go in the app store for co- competing against other native apps. You've got a vertical that you're building for a particular customer and it's the only app that exists and you might as well build it the easiest way you can for the platforms you need to support. Exactly. And you don't want to rewrite it multiple times in different languages. So this was a perfect solution for me. 
I, I was able to build not only iOS, but Android at the same time. Right. And then I had a, you know, I couldn't go to the Windows side, so I did have to compile in Windows, uh, you know, write a native app for it. Okay. But this allowed me to cross, you know, or kill two birds with one stone. And of course, all Air stuff still runs on all the regular machines too, on Windows and Mac and anywhere else. That's another great thing. Uh, when I'm done with the app and I get a request to make this app a desktop app, mm-hmm. you know, I just a couple of compile changes and then there's a desktop app. So the real challenge here is, are what do you need to know about Air? Like, I guess you have to have been a Flash programmer. You don't have to be. But you do need to know at least JavaScript or jQuery. Mm-hmm. AS3 is very close to it. So I'd say if you were a JavaScript or jQuery programmer, you could uh, you could pick up Flash in no time. The first app I actually built uh, in Air was just a was just a smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I drew a smiley face for my kids that bounced around using the accelerometer, and. Uh, Put it on my Android phone, put it on my iPad, and handed it to my five-year-old son and said, here, go play with it. And all I did was draw to the screen and compile. Nice. What kind of access do you have to the, um, to the, to the native sort of device itself? I mean, we were talking a little bit about it, but is there, is there anything that you don't have access to on the iPhone, let's say? The only thing that you don't have access to is the newest stuff. So... Um, when the Retina display come out, we didn't have direct access to it until the next version of Air. Okay. So if there's something new, you won't have access to it. But so far, they've they've had feature parity with Xcode and uh, and Coco. So I can access the camera. I can access the accelerometer. My Android, I can access NFC. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. So Flash is not dead. It's just a zombie. That, exactly. It become a zombie and it's called Air now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Whose brains does it want to eat? Yeah, that's the yeah. that's exactly my next question. Right, <laughs> I'm trying to find the holes in the pro in the system. You know, yeah. You said it also worked on different platforms, not just iOS, right? That's correct. It also works on Android as well as BlackBerry Playbook. You can also take the same code and write a desktop app. Okay, nice. Any any um, I mean, I I know the answer, but is there any way that a C sharp developer can leverage their skills, or is it all Action Script? I do not know of a C-sharp developer that doesn't know jQuery to some extent. They can mm-hmm. jump on this, no problem. Because the jQuery is not, not a problem, but ActionScript seems pretty simple, too. Yeah, ActionScript, like I said, is written exactly like jQuery. It, mm-hmm. it looks almost the exact same. Yeah. I got to think that what the challenge then would be, how do you make an iOS uh, app look like it's iPhone and an Android app look like it's Android and still keep a common base. Yeah. Yeah, that that's where Flash Builder comes in real handy. With Flash Builder, you can set UIs for different devices. Hmm. So you can build a specific uh, UI for a 4.3-inch screen, or you can build a UI for a 10-inch screen, and you can say, okay, when I go to iOS, I want it to use this UI. But are the the controls, the buttons, and all that? Are they native controls, or are they just do they just look like the native controls? They just look like the native controls. They are not actually native controls. Ah. What I do is I'll open up Xcode, build my interface, and in, uh, you know, in, in Xcode's uh, built interface builder, and then I'll just take screenshots of it, or uh, use Photoshop and paste it in, or redraw it in vector. 
and uh, Illustrator and then put it in. So as we discussed with our All Balkan, it looks like an, uh, a native app, but it doesn't necessarily behave like a native app. Exactly. So that, that could be a problem, no? Yeah, if you're, if you're graphically challenged, uh, don't know Photoshop and Illustrator, uh, creating an app that looks exactly like an iOS app or an Android app is not going to be easy. But even if it looks like it, when you press the button, what happens? If, if there isn't the same kind of feedback with the same exact look and feel, you know, in the same amount of time, one of my, one of my issues with a, like a phone gap, for example, application that I wrote and I told her all this too, is that it looked like a native app, but when I pressed a button, you know, it was waiting. It didn't give me any immediate feedback. It was waiting for HTML to be downloaded, and and I thought my phone was broken. Do you get any of those kinds of, you know, there therein lies the zombie effect right there, right? Exactly. Do you get that kind of stuff? I do not, and mainly because, like I said, I try to make it look like a, uh, you know, a native iOS app, and I try to program the controls like that. But most of the time, my apps will be, you know, full screen with maybe a back button. So the the HTML5 is the core of it. It's not meant to look like a native app. I see. So you are in this. This was the this was the case that we brought up with the Raw Balkan too. When you own the UI, when it when it isn't supposed to look like it's part of the you know the OS. But but it is interesting though. Do you do you get pushback from? People that say, hey, this doesn't look and feel like an iPhone app. This looks like, you know, something new. I mean, I can see in a game where that would be a good idea. But in a in an enterprise application, do you get any pushback that it doesn't quite look right? I never have, no. No. Interesting. And I've done 20, 25 different enterprise applications. So you would know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it gets, gives to get back to this original concept of if it's an in-house app, People just use it. It's only when you're trying to sell it on the app store that you're going to have issues. Exactly. I, I do believe there's a level of, uh, not a level of training, but a level of disassociation as, you know, this is the, you know, the company's app. This is not a regular app. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't say the real, what they really said. You, this is the company app. We expect it to suck. <laughs> I think you just dissed you, David. My users are not saying that. (laughs) (laughs) I think you just got dissed by Richard Campbell. No, and I don't mean it that way. Yeah, he he means they cut you some slack in terms of you know, it doesn't look because because everybody's getting their data and they're making happy noises, which is really the most important thing in an enterprise. Honestly, if it looks and feels like a native app, I have never had a person question me about it. it, And maybe it's just that. I've worked with Macs for so long that I understand how it should look and feel, but uh, I'd like to think that it's just that there's a level of, uh, you know, the app works. They don't question it. They right. don't know that it was built with air. Yep. Well, yeah, more, the mortals don't know, don't care. They just would think it was a little weird. Yeah, yeah. But if, like you said, if it works and it, it, it gets their job done, they're happy. Exactly. And I, I've had nothing but praise with these apps because, the users are like I was in, you know, I was in China and I couldn't, I couldn't get back to SAP on my laptop, but I had mm-hmm. cell phone signal on my iPhone and I was able to jump right in. Nice. Getting into that mobile portability is what it's all about. Hey, what about the App Store? Can apps built in Air be sent to the App Store? Is that legal? I thought there were rules about that from Apple. Since Air compiles down to ARM native code, it gets around the loophole 
uh, or it has a loophole uh, against Steve Jobs' argument okay. uh, that that no app should have any outside API. Uh, so yes, you can submit your apps to the App Store, and there are several. If you ever use TweetDeck, mm-hmm. yeah, TweetDeck is a Air app. Wow, isn't that cool? And I run TweetDeck on my desktop too. I guess it's Air there as well. Exactly, one code base, multiple platforms, and different UIs. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's my zombie impression. So. Nice. I have a zombie on my desktop. I like that. Yeah, that was great. Nice. Speaking of the App Store, David, how do you deploy the app to your enterprise? Do you have to load it up to the App Store and have people download it? No. Actually, Apple provides a enterprise license. So it's a license you purchase from Apple. I believe it's $199. Mm-hmm. You can uh, you build your apps the same way. It's just a certificate file. And then you can load the app that you've compiled with Air uh, on any website, the users can go right to it, download it, and load it mm-hmm. just like they would an App Store app. So you can build your own in-house App Store. Nice. But do you have to have an OSX machine to do that? You do not. You can build that completely in Windows. Nice. That's another issue for folks that are just getting iOS. They suddenly realize, I have to own a Mac. That's not true. Okay. Uh, what about on the Android side? How does that whole side-loading mechanism look uh, over on Android? Android makes it easy. Once you've built an Android app, uh, you can sideload it any way you want to. You can put it on a website. You can throw it over USB. They don't have the same restrictions. That they Apple don't have does. any restrictions. Anybody can just put anything up there that they want. That's one of the problems with Android. Well, you do. they do have one restriction where the user has to turn on the uh, uh, load apps that are not signed from the App Store. Right. So it's a debug or a development switch. But other than that, there's no no restrictions. Because I can see enterprise apps, you don't want them up in the App Store at all. You want to be able to load them through your own mechanism. But how do you get it to 1,000 users? Exactly. So you, you, are you running some kind of... I, I know on the Apple side, you run this enterprise app on your server that does the side loading. What does the Android side look like for that? It's the same thing. We just put it up on the uh, web server. Mm-hmm. It's a certain MIME type that you put in. I believe it's like X slash application and then uh once they click on it it triggers the load right on their right from their web browser on the phone nice so you just email everyone uh the link essentially on your web server and that will kick off the install process and we actually use sharepoint and just have a sharepoint site set up with these particular it looks like an app store nice wow that's great sharepoint well you know got a little point yeah <laughs> Yeah, I'm just thinking about SharePoint and Air mixed together, but I, I don't even think I want to go there. Well, it's a delivery mechanism, that's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's keep it at that. Yeah. There you go. All right. I have a clear picture of Air. Let us go back to Connect. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have a little issue that I've uh, run across. My uh, my tool, Gesture Pack, uh, is a gesture recognition and uh, matching system for Connect for Windows. And it writes out the raw data as, you know, single precision numbers. And in the code that I use, I use link, link to XML. I found out that I had to use the format uh, to format the, the, a string from that number. Otherwise, I get all sorts of weird versions of a string of a single in depending on the version of Windows. Like uh, many of them use comma, a comma instead of a decimal point. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this? I have not. Uh, it's very strange. 
Yeah, if you take a single and set it to like one dot two three four five six, and then you know write it to an XML file with single you know two string with the variable two string overload, you're going to get a comma instead of a decimal point in some versions of Windows. Are you running it through any encode process before you send it out to XML? No. Or maybe they're doing an encode process. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe the XML is doing it, but, but I found that I had to do that. I had to use this format in, you know, rather than just the standard two string override. Sometimes I would get no comma or no period at all, just a big number. It's just very weird. It's just very strange. Yeah, I've actually not run into that. That uh, sounds unrelated to Connect itself. Yeah, it's unrelated. It's a .NET issue. Um, it may be a link issue, but uh, but it, it, I just wondered if you've ever ever seen single precision numbers written uh, with commas instead of periods before. No, not unless you know I've run like URL and code over them or something with the HTTP handler. Hmm. Or they, what was it, HTTP helper URL encode? Hmm. I uh, used to do some really funky stuff with different, different, uh, formats. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I'll check that out. I think the, the connect is a, is a wonderful thing. I've, I, I don't know what you're ex- especially doing with it. I know that you're doing a lot of stuff other than what comes out of the box. Um, it seems like all the really cool people are using the depth sensor and doing their own kind of mapping. Uh, you know, all the, the academics are doing facial recognition. I had, I saw one guy, one company doing sign language recognition and nailing it with the depth yeah. sensor. Um, do you, do you use that at all? I do. Um, but I actually use the, uh, Connect SDK, uh, for the skeletal tracking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have used some of the, uh, some of the stuff that some of the academics have written to, uh, map depth to facial recognition. Uh, get join orientation mm. and stuff like that before the Connect SDK had it. Right. Now the Connect SDK has all of that built in. So one thing that I you might not realize is that the, these are layers. Like first you get the image, you know, the depth image, and the skeleton relies on the depth image. Like mm-hmm. the skeleton, the skeletal tracking is done post depth. So if That's you right. want more resolution. You know, you have to sort of write your own stuff at that depth image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, all you get back from the Connect itself is a depth image and a RGB image. Yeah. And it also has some tilt and accelerometer stuff, but, um, yeah, the, the SDK itself takes the depth image. I think it was uh, John Shotton uh, from the UK who figured out if I have a depth image and it looks like a human, where are the different sections of the body? Right. And he was able to map that stuff out. Uh, and they've, you know, they've advanced that quite a lot from then. Yeah, they have. Yeah. The latest version of the SDK is, is completely awesome uh, with facial recognition, joint rotation, yep. near view so that you can be yep. sitting down in front of the computer and it recognizes your skeleton rather than having to stand up. Seated mode, sitting mode, near and far. And uh, mm-hmm. what? Uh, tell me about some of the things that you've done with the Connect. Some more things. I, we heard a couple, but... I'm actually writing a book called Hacking Connect uh, with Pearson Media. And uh, so I've, I've done just about everything with it. I went from skeletal tracking and building games that, you know, walk you through a maze, uh, you know, doing different gestures to taking the depth image and uh, 
you know, trying to find dogs and cats rather than humans. Wow. Wow. Uh, we had a cat that kept coming up on our porch eating our dog food. <laughs> so I wanted to be alerted when the cat was out there so I could go chase it off. I love it. You are a sick yeah. man. I love it. Yeah, I could use a bear tracker for my backyard, actually. <laughs> That'd be great. Well, see, bears are actually very similar to humans, so it, it may just auto-detect it. Yeah, it might just. Yeah, work at walking four-legged even. It would probably figure it out. Yeah. I was looking in the Connect community on the on Microsoft. You know, they have a community for forums and things, and one of the questions was, will it recognize a fish? <laughs> what? <laughs> I swear to God. Somebody wanted to know if the Connect will say, that's a fish. Yeah, the the water is kind of a problem for the depth image. Yeah, yeah. However, I, w I went down to Georgia Tech, and one really cool use of the depth image was for landing drone planes. For landing a plane, a drone. Landing drone planes. Yeah. Wow. So they were they had these surveillance planes that went out and like took pictures of, uh, you know, people's landscape and whatnot. I guess for mapping, and then when they went to go land them. They were crashing a lot of them because there was a rock ahead or something that they couldn't avoid. Uh, so they used the Connect to do kind of object avoidance right before they land. That last 10 feet, right? Like just the exactly. that last little bit. Uh, the question is whether or not you could make it fast enough. I guess it's just, isn't it a 60th of a second it does a full raster? Yeah. So it might be fast enough. And you get full uh, full motion video, 30 frames a second. That's awesome. Yeah, that that would really be something to be able to handle that. I mean, I've seen the uh, the Connect on a quad rotor drone that's using the Connect to recognize the floor and objects and fly around things. I mean, it, that's clearly where Skynet's going to go when the robots take over. Exactly. <laughs> Better watch out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When those quad bots start flying around with Connects, we're in big trouble. So can we just go ahead and pre-program in Microsoft's base code to detect Richard? <laughs> <laughs> So I went to this um, Connect gesture recognition thing where it was a contest, and I was looking at a lot of the other people. They were doing the the uh, depth stuff, and they were using a, a a sort of a forest, a decision forest algorithm, which I guess makes it uh, is very efficient for discovering and understanding the depth image. Do you use that? I don't use the depth image when I do gestures. Um, I'm using the skeletal. Okay. So I, I already rely on the skeleton to do it. Yeah. Uh, I do it in a loop, and I do use a decision force to be able to say, you know, is the hand in this certain position? If so, start. Is it this kind of gesture? Is it that kind of gesture? Right. All right. Well, hey, man, uh, it's been so good to talk to you. I, I love talking to people who just think out of the box and and have uh, success hacking stuff. It's great. Yeah. Technology is my passion. It was great to see y'all. The last time I saw y'all was at Mix 11. Oh, wow. Been a while. That was the last mix. Yep. That's great. All right, then, David. Thank you very much. And thank you, listener, for listening. We'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. It's not too much.